0: does Scripture speak of security, assurance of salvation based on a profession of faith in the past? So basically what I'm asking, does Scripture say, because you made a profession of faith some point in the past, you can be confident you have a relationship with God? Does Scripture teach that? Fan says no. Anyone else? Jeff. Are you stopping with the statement made a profession of faith? Yes. Now think about the implications of what some of you said. Priscilla. Think about some of the implications of what we're discussing. How many people over the years have said, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, and they say it's because I trusted Christ five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago? Now, some of you are saying that's not in Scripture. That's a pretty strong implication. Because if that's what they're basing their assurance on, and it's not in Scripture, then they're basing it on a false assurance. I'm not saying it's in Scripture, I'm just saying there's implications to beliefs, implications to the way we think. I've been told over and over, over the last 40 years, you know, talk to people about Christ, do you have a relationship with God? And... Well, I'm, yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, I'm to the point I say I'm not asking if you're going to heaven when you die. I'm asking if you have a relationship with God. Well, how do you know you have a relationship with God? And if you want to use the question, how do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Well, I trusted Christ years and years ago. I said, is that all? Yeah. If that's not in Scripture, that's a pretty strong implication for how we respond to people, how we relate in our own lives. Another question. Why would one who is in Christ desire to live in sin? Why would one who is in Christ desire to live in sin? I see one hand going this way. <laughs> Why would one in Christ desire to live in sin? OK? Another question: Does being in Christ radically change a person? Does being in Christ radically change a person? Uh, here are a yes. Now think about those questions. We may pose questions. We need to think biblically. We looked at some scriptures last week. We're going to look at some more tonight. We're drawing some conclusions as we go along, and some of the conclusions we draw will not necessarily be from the passages considered tonight, but may be from one considered last week or in a week to come. But let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now as Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, remember he is writing to a church that is clearly stated in chapter 1 and verse 2 that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul was thankful for them. God's working in their life. But we know that they were a divided church. Some followed Peter, some followed Paul, some Apollo, some said they followed Christ. We know that they had immorality into the church, and they were tolerating that. They had lawsuits among themselves. They had some apparently marriage difficulties. Paul responds to a question about food sacrifice to idols, but yet they were saints. Remember, the church in Corinth obviously was in the city of Corinth, very immoral city a very messed up city, and uh, to live like a Corinthian is to live pretty ungodly. These people have come to Christ, and when Paul writes, they have not been saved for 15 or 20 years, maybe several years, and they had some difficulties. They were divided, so Paul writes to correct that, teach them how to respond. They were tolerating immorality, and he tells them, you know, expel the immoral man he tells them how to respond to their lawsuits and says, you know, you're already defeated because you have lawsuits and so on. And in chapter 11, we're going to pick up reading with verse 17. In The following directive I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there has. Have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for another or anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Now, a little background information on apparently what would have happened in Corinth and the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church would have been made up of slaves and those who were uh, were not slaves. And if you study the history, apparently some people would come, they would have a meal and involved with their, if you want to call it a fellowship meal, they would have what we call the Lord's Supper communion. So some people... That were not slaves would apparently get there early, and those who were slaves would get there later, they would eat, they would drink. And when those who got there later, one re- remains hungry, another gets drunk. No, there was a division. Verse 23 For I received from the Lord what also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat and drink this bread, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are Weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When you're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions." Now Paul very clearly states in verse 27 after explaining what took place with the Last Supper, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And then he says a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Now as you think about the flow of the passage, what is Paul exhorting these believers to do? So... This part of the church comes early, they have their meal, they pig out, they drink too much, and the rest of us come and we don't get anything to eat. What's happening? The body of Christ is not functioning as a body. Some are being treated one way, some a different way. And I think when he says, in light of the text of Scripture, A man ought to examine himself. He ought to examine himself in relation to other believers. What is the relationship there? I don't think it's an examination of every sin that one may have committed in the last week or two weeks or month or whatever. It's more, how are you relating to the body? How are you treating your brothers? In this case, it would have involved a meal because he explains that. And he clearly says in verse thirty three then, so my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And if you're really hungry, well then eat at home. So that we would not be condemned, or um, so that may not result in judgment. And I think that's the context. And notice we're dealing with believers who he said earlier are carnal, but yet they're saints. He explains part of the problem in verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. And he would be referring to physical death. So his exhortation, but if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Now, apparently believers here in Corinth were having some difficulties they weren't realizing what was going on probably fully, but God was dealing with them. And as Paul writes, he says, when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we would not be condemned with the world. Again, he's writing to believers who have not been believers for 50 years or 30 years or even 15 years had a problem. And Paul says, you're really not celebrating the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper indicates the body of Christ in the present, the unity, the harmony, the oneness within the body of Christ. The eaters and the eater-nots, <laughs> those who drink and those who drink not. He says there's a division. and He says... God is judging you. He's disciplining you so that you won't be condemned with the world. Some of you are weak. Some of you are sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. A number of you have died. But what did God do? God dealt with them. He didn't let them hang. In the sense that he didn't judge them or discipline them. Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines you no, we say we don't like discipline. Would you ever thank God for discipline? Because God disciplines his children. So his exhortation, you know, wait for each other when you come together. Questions or comments before we go to passage in 2 Corinthians? <clears throat> okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians 3, obviously Paul's second second letter that he's writing to the Corinthians, and apparently they had responded to some things that he wrote in 1st Corinthians. But in 2nd Corinthians, we'll pick up with verse 7, he's been talking about the New Covenant, been talking about Christ at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. In chapter 3 in verse 7, he's comparing the New Covenant, comparing Christ with Moses, Verse 7 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns man is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings Righteousness. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Moses got the Mosaic law, came down from the mountain, his face shone, he covered his face while the glory was fading away. He says, if the law was glorious and it brought death, because people couldn't keep the law, How much more glorious is Christ? Therefore, in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. With ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The law, a veil. But when one turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's not slavery to sin, there's freedom in Christ. We earlier sang leaning on the everlasting arms. And I leaned over to Ruth Ann and I said, maybe we should use a different word than leaning. See, if you're leaning, you know, some still depends upon you. (laughs) In Christ, we're not really leaning, it's total dependency that brings freedom. So, what does he say? And we, who with unveiled faces, referring to himself, I think it would include the Corinthians, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Corinthians, divided. Corinthians, immoral man accepted in their fellowship of believers. Corinthians, married marital difficulties. Corinthians, taking each other to court. That's the first letter Paul now says, being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. No, they were being transformed. They weren't at a standstill. At year three or year four, they were in a much different place than year two. Because of the freedom that is in Christ. Says, being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. You know, it's on and on, which comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Now notice what 18 says. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. I'm going to read it again. Notice the wording. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are attempting to be transformed into his likeness. The Lord is doing the transformation. Because Christ is our life. Well, I just tried to live better. Yes, we need to choose to obey, but we can't. It's Christ. So you're greatly wronged by someone and you read Ephesians 4:31 and 32 that talk about the fact that we're to be forgiving. And you say, God, I can't forgive. And God says, good. I'm glad you got that down. You can't. But Christ is your life. And because Christ is your life, you can now choose to forgive. So I go back years ago, and I used this before. You know, my brothers and I are cleaning that chicken pen week after week. So we do our barn work in the morning, then we go clean chicken pen till noon, then we gather eggs, and we go clean chicken pen until we do eggs again at night. We do that week after week, and as we're doing that, the chicken part, pen part, the manure, we whine and complain. So Dad comes along and says, "Boys, you know you're to have a joyful attitude as you." Do this work. Dad, you don't understand. This is terrible stuff. It smells bad and probably die someday of a lung disease, you know, from everything else, you know, that's going on here. Dad says, uh, no, you're supposed to obey me with a joyful attitude. Can't, Dad. Dad says, good. That's a good place to be. You can't. It's only through Christ you can. That's where Paul's coming from. There's freedom to respond, a freedom to say no to sin, and a freedom to be sensitive to Christ who is our life. Spirit of God, ever convict you of something? And you think, I don't like the direction this is going. And finally, you come to the point of saying, okay, God, I'm wrong. And then you think of some scripture. And you say, God, do I have to admit I'm wrong? Yeah. Do I have to take action on this? Yeah. I can't, God. I know you can't. That's why Christ is your life. That's why there's Transformation. Are being transformed to his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is a Spirit. See, the Mosaic Law said, "Do this," but didn't give the ability to do. Christ says, "Here's how to live in relationship with me," and since Christ is your life, or since I'm your life as Christ, you can respond. What does He do? He transforms us into greater. And greater glory. Questions or comments before we go on? We could look at some other passages. We'll look at some next week. I think sometimes in Christian circles we ask the wrong question, or maybe we word it incorrectly. So we may raise a question, and as some we, like some we raised earlier, you know, what about the assurance of the believer someone made a profession of faith in the past? You know, and so on. Maybe we cheat, need to change the nature from, is the person who is living in sin but claims to have been saved years ago a believer? Maybe we ought to change that to, why would one who is in Christ desire to live in sin? So it's a totally different question. Is the person who is living in sin but claims to be a believer or claims to have been saved years ago a believer? Let's change the question. Why would one who is in Christ desire to live in sin? See, the focus moves to Christ. The other focus is wanting to live, you know, close to sin. Another one, can a genuine believer continue to live in sin? Let's change the question. How can one who is in Christ, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, not pursue righteousness and holiness? See, so the shift is from sin to righteousness and holiness. Is once saved always saved in Scripture? <clears throat> Let's change the nature of the question. Why focus so much on security and assurance <clears throat> when Scripture focuses on in Christ? And the radicalness of being in Christ. See, again, we're shifting the nature of the question. Maybe we need to ask how can I not be holy when God my Father is holy? How can I not be holy when God my Father is holy? Whether I like to admit it or not, I'm a chip off my, the old block. If you want to use that terminology, you know, chip off a of mom and dad. Been married to Ruthann over 41 years, and I still display some of the good characteristics of my dad and some of the not so good characteristics of my dad. And my children have the same issues. You know, they have to deal with some of my not so good characteristics and some of my good ones. How can I not be like my dad when I'm a son of my dad? How can I not be holy when God my Father is holy? See, that question is in a much, much different realm. Isn't it natural to desire to draw close to the one who died in your place to give you life? Isn't that natural? How does being in Christ influence one's desires? How can I be holy? See, we're shifting from sin to holiness. We're shifting to Christ in the way we ask questions. And I think that is no important. And I'm going to make a statement in light of a question we asked earlier. Scripture, to my knowledge, never speaks of security assurance based on a profession of faith in the past. Oh, you made a profession of faith in the past. Now you're secure because of that profession of faith. Rather, it's in the context of one's present lifestyle. See, the Corinthians could say, we're believers in Christ. Why? Because some of us died and some of us are sick. And Paul's writing this letter to let us know we're wrong. And then he writes a second letter and he says, you're being transformed. He doesn't say, oh, you remember way back when you made a profession of faith? He says, no, in your present life you're being transformed. Read 1 John. The purpose of 1 John, or one of the purposes of 1 John is so that you may know that you have eternal life. And everything in 1 John deals with the present lifestyle. It's not what happened in the past, it's in the present. So some conclusions. I would encourage you not to attempt to assure a person they're a believer based on a profession of faith in the past. So you're talking to someone, I'm not sure I'm a believer. Well, did you ever come to faith in Christ? Yeah, I got saved 20 years ago. Hmm. You got saved 20 years ago? You came into a relationship with God? Yeah. Yeah. You were transformed the kingdom of darkness to the kingdoms of light? Well, I'm not so sure about that, but I did make a profession of faith. Have you ever considered that Scripture does not talk about assurance of salvation based upon a profession of faith in the past? It talks about the present lifestyle. So, someone comes up to me and says, Dan, are you living? Oh, yeah, I was born 62 years ago. Oh, I didn't ask if you were born, I asked if you're living. Yeah, I was born 62 years ago. That wasn't my question. I asked, Are you living? Yeah, I'm talking to you, and see, my heart's beating. I'm breathing. I ate some food this morning. Ah, I'm alive. Are you a believer in Christ? Well, yesterday, God really knocked me over the head, as Bud said, you know, and he said, you know, Bud, you're wrong. And I admitted I was wrong, and I said, thank you for what I have in Christ. And uh, I said something unkind to Lorena a couple of days ago, and five minutes later, God's just, it's almost like the Spirit of God said, Bud. Did you ever read Ephesians 4.29, don't let any cutting word come out of your mouth? Oh, uh, yeah, God, that, that kind of slipped my mind. Don't you think you ought to go apologize to your wife? I went to apologize to my wife, you know. Boy, I, I just, you know, I want to think well, and well, then I guess you're alive. See, if one wonders if they're a believer, look at the present lifestyle. Encourage them to look at the present lifestyle. Do not be afraid to admit that a claim of trusting Christ in the past has little or nothing to do with whether one is a one whether or not one is a believer. I'm not saying the profession of faith in the past was not valid, but what's the present lifestyle? I'm not saying the person's a non-believer, but look at the present lifestyle. No, it's. Is there evidence of life? For a parent to assure a teenager they are a believer in Christ due to a profession of faith as a child when the teen is struggling with assurance of salvation, I don't think is real wise. For a parent to say, oh, Johnny, you remember, you made a profession of faith when you were five years old. I don't remember, but if you say I did, I guess I did, so I guess I'm saying why not rather take them to First John, and say, "Do you have a pattern of obedience? You know, are you obeying God? You know, are you in love with God, you know, and so on. Are you loving your brother, and rather than hating them, and so on? You know, is that your pattern of life?" Well, you know, as I read First John, I got some issues here. Well, then begin to obey. And so, a couple months later, they come to mom and dad and say, "Mom, and dad, I I'm still not sure I'm a believer." And mom and dad say, "Well, what, what's been going on in your life the last couple of months?" Well, I beat my sister yesterday, you know, and about ten minutes later, it's like God said, you're to be kind. And without you telling me, I went and apologized and asked my sister's forgiveness. And the other day in school, some kids got to talking about some things that weren't very good, and I, I just quietly walked away. You know, they were talking about things that just were really ungodly, and it just bothered me, so I quietly walked away. Well, son or daughter, well, in this case, son, isn't that evidence that you're living spiritually? It's not that you're telling someone they were never saved. You're just saying, look at your present lifestyle, and if they're not living well, challenge them to live in Christ. Or read first John and see what it does to them. Assurance. In Christ we're secure because of what Christ has done, but assurance in our lives seems to be in the present. You now how we live in the present, not what happened in the past. So someone comes up to me and says, Dan, you're living. I said, Yeah. How do you know you're living? Well, when I was five years old, I ate breakfast, lunch, and supper. Hmm. Are you sure you're alive? Yes. When I was seven, I ate breakfast, lunch, and supper. Hmm. My father ate breakfast, lunch, and supper when he was five, and when he was seven, and he's dead. Physically. And I'm not drawing too strong of a parallel between the physical and the spiritual. But again, we're dealing with the present lifestyle. So you get down the road forty years from now, you go over to Oakdale, and assuming that's where I'm put under, and you come to the, my grave, and you say, "Hey, pastor, what'd you have for supper?" And you say, "Don't be so dumb." spiritually, those who are alive, God deals with them. It's not that they're perfect. It's not that they don't sin. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and they had issues. But as God confronted them, they were being transformed. And I think the same is true as we think about other passages of Scripture. Okay, I'll wrap it up. Again, think well. Think in light of Scripture. We haven't arrived But with Christ as our life, we're in process of moving to greater and greater transformation.